0: All right, we want to welcome all of our listeners and viewers to the 35th episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in media and business. And today, joining us is Mary O'Hara, who is the first reporter at Adweek. Let's jump in and get to know Mary. How are you?
1: I am good. Thanks for having me on, guys.
0: Absolutely. Excited you're here. For our viewers and and listeners who aren't familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing right now for a living and sort of your area of uh, expertise.
1: Yeah, so I'm a journalist. I've been doing media work for a little over 15 years now. Currently, I'm the diversity and inclusion reporter at Adweek magazine. I just started there actually at the beginning of this year. So it's a new position, it's a new beat, and we're just basically covering... All things diversity, inclusion and equity in the advertising world and brands, and it's still coming together, but it's really exciting so far. It's an exciting new venture.
0: That's awesome. You've got a, a great crew over there, and we certainly have lots of friendlies over there, so good folks surrounding you. Tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from and where were you born and raised?
1: Oh man, that's a <laughs> That's a long story. Uh, I was born in Chicago. But I grew up with mostly with a single mom and we moved around constantly. So I grew up really in various inner city areas in New York City, Philly, and Chicago. But the really defining thing that held it all together was that we just moved all the time. So I'm one of those people who is basically an army brat, but just without the army. I went to 10 different schools between the ages of 5 and 15. I don't think we ever really lived anywhere longer than a year My mom was kind of like a struggling artist, and you know there were times when she did better than other times, but I basically think of my upbringing as a little bit chaotic, but also in some ways somewhat privileged because even though we didn't have any money, my mom was definitely very firmly in sort of the creative class. So I grew up around a lot of artists and writers and a lot of drag queens, things like that. I was exposed to a lot of culture from a very young age.
0: That's cool. How do you uh, think that sort of shaped your background, or, or or shaped who you are today, really?
1: Well, it. I mean, those are interesting things to think about for sure. You know, I've often wondered, like, you know, for example, being queer. I didn't. I didn't come out as gay until my mid twenties, which is strange because I grew up around so many gay people and and so much gay culture. You know, you'd think that that would have been like uh, sort of a I don't want to call it a breeding ground or something, but but I've often wondered if there was any influence there. But I struggled with coming out just as much as anyone else does, and I didn't really do it until mid to late 20s. So, you know, I've I've often thought about that sort of nature versus nurture thing a lot, and I'm not sure where it lands. But I do think that in some ways my perspective on sort of culture, diversity, stuff like that, was shaped by my upbringing because we lived so often in inner city neighborhoods where we were often like the only white family. And a lot of the kids that I went to school with were black or Hispanic. I grew up around a lot of Puerto Rican and Dominican families and cultures in particular, you know, just like learning Spanish and, and a lot about those cultures and stuff. So I think that if anything, like, that probably had the biggest impact on my perspective is just being a city kid, being from a real melting pot kind of background and, you know, never having lived in the suburbs or anything like that.
2: <laughs> now, Mary, I mean, you, you have a career in terms, in, in terms of reporting and writing about diversity and inclusion. I know that your new role here at Adweek is new for you from the sense of now being in the in the advertising space, right? Can you talk a little bit about your career journey and how you got to the position that you're in now?
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely was not your typical direct route at all. I mean, first of all, I don't I'm an ad week, I don't have an advertising background, but I obviously do have a long career in journalism and this is something that we talked about even during the interview process. I wondered if it would hamper me that I hadn't worked in advertising, but I think actually, just you know, Adweek ultimately it is a journalism outlet, and they they look for journalism skills above all else. And and the ad world is sort of uh, just the beat that we report on. You know, the industry that we report on. Before coming to Adweek, I had definitely built up a sort of reputation for doing DNI reporting in the sense that I did a lot of. LGBTQ news and, and issues and culture before that. I worked for several LGBT-specific outlets, the most recently being Into, which was Grindr's first attempt at making a media and content site. Before that, I worked at Them, which is um, the LGBT magazine at Condé Nast. And I had been the LGBT reporter at The Daily Dot and had written for NBC Out which was one of the diversity verticals at NBC News Digital. So I had just really developed a specialty in that particular area, which obviously, it it definitely helps to be queer. But I think also just at the time that I was working in those places, there was a lot of really interesting new changes happening in politics and policy around the LGBT community. So it was a good time to sort sort of hone in on that. But throughout my career also, I feel like I've just, I guess because I came into journalism thinking of it as sort of a a community effort, like um, the voice of the voiceless, you know, the, the purpose that journalism serves, the mission to give a voice to the people, to get information to the people, all of that kind of stuff. I always had... An eye on what I was writing from a DNI perspective to make sure that I was including voices from the bottom up rather than just you know reporting from the police blotter or just sort of promoting what a brand is putting out there, really trying to go to people in communities and help them tell their stories. so I think that that definitely influenced the career path that eventually brought me to being a diversity and inclusion reporter because so much of my work has been focused on going straight to people and communities and giving them the mic.
2: Mm-hmm. Is that what you love most about what you're doing? Sort of giving giving a voice to the, to the voiceless, as you said, so nicely?
1: Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of it. I think that also one of the great things about journalism is the ability to, you know, I don't set out to be an advocacy journalist, for one thing. I think that, that is something that people are often accused of when they do focus on underreported communities. So if you're an LGBT reporter, or if you focus on any particular community or any particular beat, you could easily be accused of, of, be accused of being an activist and, and having a, an end goal with each story that you write. My intent is never to necessarily influence things one way or the other. It's definitely just to find out what's happening, to share the facts, to dig in a little bit. But when I do see that the work that I've done has influenced some kind of change, it's incredibly rewarding. You know, like there are times when I've received a new federal commission report on something LGBT related, Mm -hmm. and I'm reading it and I'm going through the footnotes and seeing that one of my own articles is referenced in there from three years ago or something. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I have other stories about beats that I reported on and really developed. And just watched as that particular issue just really evolved, you know. And so, I think that that's probably the most rewarding thing is just the way that your work actually does push forward, not just the conversation, but what is happening around it.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's really super super important. You know, in today's business world, right, a lot is made of sort of diversity and inclusion, right, in terms of. The workplace being more inclusive, which is great. You know, I, I'm curious to know from or hear from your perspective. You know, what do you think that organizations can be doing to make the workplace more inclusive for all employees? I remember when when you and I were preparing for this, we we talked a lot about making sure that you're you're sort of your authentic self at work, right? Bringing your full self to the workplace, and sometimes that isn't. Uh, a, a challenge for individuals. So, curious to get your thoughts on what do you think corporations or companies can do to make sure that their workplace is inclusive for all?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a question that comes up pretty much every day for any DI practitioner or a DI reporter, right? And it's something that I've been thinking about more and more. You know, I think the, the big challenge for corporations, meaning really executives and, and managers, the people who make the decisions at the top the big challenge there is to recognize that the people who work for you are people. You know, they, they have their own lives outside of work. We all have our own social media accounts now where we express ourselves. We show a little window into our personal lives as well. So it's not really possible for us anymore just to be these sort of professional robots. Like we can't just show up to the office and be engaged in that professional mode and then leave it there. Like, you know, you're going to, Come across my Instagram story later and then see something like a little more personal or whatever. And I think that the world is just becoming a little bit more casual that way and a little bit more open. And so, what people need to realize is like people need to be able to bring their full selves to work as well. You know, we don't have this on and off switch. So, if my background's a little bit different than the person I'm working next to, or my culture is a little bit different, or I go home and I express myself in a different way, or the, the people that I spend time with, you know, they look different than the people in the office or something like that. It doesn't really matter, you know? Once we we all go to work and we do our jobs and we bring our strengths and weaknesses and we get the job done, you know? So I think that that, that is naturally starting to happen, especially because of social media. Like we can't really hide who we are and what we believe in stuff anymore but um as far as diversity and inclusion at that business level like i think every company every ad agency every brand they know that they have to do better with hiring in terms of hiring more people from underrepresented backgrounds but when it comes to inclusion making sure that people are actually actually comfortable at work that they they don't feel like outsiders mm. that's a longer road you know because that happens not just in the company culture and letting people sort of be themselves, but it's also an internal thing. You know, it's something that that each one of us goes through as we experience feeling like an outsider in a professional environment.
0: Mary, have you personally ever experienced discrimination? And if so, like how did you deal with
1: that? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because I know this is a question that that you guys ask a lot of podcast guests, and it's so funny to me the idea that anyone coming on this podcast could have gotten through life without experiencing discrimination at some point, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be 44 this May. So, whew, you know, we could revisit my 20s. And I definitely had more than one experience with sexual harassment as a young person in the workplace, unfortunately. And... Yeah, I mean, discrimination, it rears its head in various different ways. You know, there have been times where even as a journalist, I was cut from a newsroom because they didn't think that they needed someone who reported on LGBTQ news and issues. And when that kind of thing happens, you can't help but take it a little bit personally because you know how important these these issues are to your community. So there's so many different levels, you know. But I, I think that The thing I would want to say most about facing discrimination and dealing with it is if I could go back to myself in my twenties and knowing what I know now, I think I would have made a little bit more of a stink about things. I would have stood up for myself a bit more because when I was young and I would face things like sexual harassment or pay disparity, both things that I did unfortunately experience, I usually would just quit the job. You know, I would just walk out or I would I would quit once I found out that the next guy who had just been hired with no experience was being paid more than I was or something like that. I never really took anyone to task on that. And I think now we're in a different era, obviously, where people do feel a little bit more empowered to speak out about things at work. But yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing that does sit with you 20 years later. You know, you, yeah. I do have a few regrets there.
0: You know, uh, we're, we're all doing this recording from our homes and, and life and work are completely upside down right now, or just not what we're used to. How do you manage a uh, sort of work-life balance? And I asked that question when we're sort of all dealing with uh, a very different way of working and, and sort of our work is now in our life space, you know, and, and vice versa. And how are you balancing that? Is there such a thing as work-life balancing anymore uh, anymore? And like what's it look like now for you?
1: Yeah, the funny thing about this is I was already working remotely from my house before all this happened. So I've been I've been living here in Portland, Oregon for about two years. Um I lived here before when I went to college here, but in between I had gone back to New York and worked there for a while. So The whole time that I've been back in Portland for these two years, I've been working from home remotely because that's basically media is based in New York or maybe uh, there's jobs in D.C. and L.A., but that's not really the kind of media jobs that I would end up in out here in Portland. So working remotely was a part of the deal of moving back. And I definitely feel like a bit of an expert at this point in how to manage work-life balance when you're working from home in your own living space. I think it takes a lot of self-discipline, really, and also managing your own emotions about it. Because, well, first of all, if you're if you're really passionate about your work, or you feel some kind of pressure, it's easy to want to make yourself work 14 hours a day. Because, you, you know, what else are you doing? You're here, it's quarantine, you're stuck at your desk. But you, you would burn out really fast if you lived like that. So I set hours for myself, you know, I have a log off time. And after that, I just don't go back on the computer. And then as far as sort of managing the emotions go, I feel like people can feel guilty for walking away from the screen right now when, again, there's maybe not as much else to do. If you don't have kids or something that's really demanding your attention outside of work, it's easy to just feel like you should be working all the time. But you shouldn't. You really shouldn't. You should be Working a bit, taking care of yourself, getting some exercise, you know, managing the the personal side as well. So work-life balance is absolutely so important. And I think it's more important for people who are working from home.
2: Yeah. And I think for most of us that are, are now experiencing what you've been uh, experiencing from working from home, uh, that's the biggest challenge is sort of that, that self-care piece of it. Mary, I want to ask you about mentors. And uh, do you have mentors? And if so, what makes up a good mentor?
1: I've never had an official, formal mentor-mentee relationship on either side, but I've definitely been on both sides of that relationship in a more casual sense. It just sort of happened organically. When I've had people mentor me, what's been really great about it is the way that they help me think differently. So there's one person, and I tell this story a lot, but I don't think anyone here has heard it, There is a musician here in Portland named Sarah Duger. She's an independent musician. And she had actually gone to the college that I applied to. I had a a really weird winding path in education where I had dropped out of high school at 15. My mom had dropped out of high school and her mom before her. So I didn't go to college until I was in my late 20s. And I started at a community college. And then from there, applied to a bunch of big fancy schools with the intention of hopefully getting a scholarship from a wealthier school. So I applied to a bunch of private schools. I ended up actually surprising myself and getting into both Stanford and Reed College. Reed is here in Portland with a full scholarship to both schools. And I didn't know what to do because for the first time in my life, I was faced with like a choice between two really great things instead of a choice between like, working a minimum wage job at the mall and washing dishes at a restaurant, you know? So I went to, I went to Sarah and I asked her, you know, which school should I go to and, and why and how do I make this decision? And she helped me understand that what my biggest obstacle was my own head. My mm-hmm. biggest obstacle was seeing myself as the kind of person who is limited to the options of either the minimum wage job or the restaurant job. And she basically laid it out for me and said, you need to decide whether you want to be president of the Museum of Modern Art or whether you want to be president of the United States. Those are your options from now on. And the reason you need to think like that is because the people that you're going to be working with at these schools, they think like that. They've been taught their whole life that that's their options to choose from. And that really blew my mind. It's something that happened maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. But I think about it constantly because the biggest challenge that we have is usually our own, you know, imposter syndrome, basically. And that sort of mentorship, that guidance was the most effective tool that I have taken into my life and my career.
2: Wow, that's great advice that you got there. And and I'm wondering, have you passed that on to to others as well too you know the question i was going to ask you is what advice would you give to anyone that's coming up in journalism today and i'm wondering if if you've passed that advice along or if you uh, have passed along any other advice
1: i definitely have a relationship with a couple of of younger people who are just starting out in their careers and the way that i try to offer help is just Practical stuff as much as possible, you know, putting people in touch with editors if they're trying to freelance, sending them fellowships and things like that that might be useful that I think they could probably get. And otherwise, yeah, I just try to be really honest with younger people who are trying to enter this industry because it's not easy. Journalism and media are on sort of shaky ground right now and they have been for a while. It, it's a, it's an industry where You have to come into it being prepared for the fact that you are likely going to experience a lot of layoffs. You're not going to have a lot of job security and, you know, it's competitive. There's, there's always like 10,000 unemployed journalists out there scrambling for a job. So I don't like to sugarcoat things. I like to tell people like, look, these are the benefits and these are the drawbacks. Make your own decision, but be prepared. Have a backup plan.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. So one fun question I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, and if you've listened to other episodes, which you said you've done, you know what's you know what's coming. Uh, <laughs> give, us, give us three apps that you use on your phone, which you cannot name, email or calendar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't, and I I guess. Um... You know, again, being a queer person, I guess Instagram and and social media and all that stuff is pretty obvious because that is such a big part of engaging with community right now. So I'm not going to name those. <laughs> um, but yeah, right now during during quarantine, especially, my three apps are Epicurious, which is a cooking and recipe blog, but it's just the way that they've structured the recipes in there I really like. Uh, Best Fiends is a mobile game that I'm just hopelessly addicted to. <laughs> and then the Calm app. Calm is the meditation app, but they also have this feature called Sleep Stories. And I am now at the point where I literally cannot sleep unless, unless one of the Sleep Stories is playing.
0: Cool. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. And a lot of times our, our viewers and listeners like to connect. How can our listeners and viewers connect with you if they want to keep the conversation going? Where can they find you?
1: Yeah, I love when people slide into my DMs on Twitter or Instagram. On pretty much every social media platform, I'm at Mary Emily O'Hara. So that's at M A R Y E M I L Y O H A R A. And then, of course, people can check out the new diversity and inclusion beat at Adweek. We also have our own podcast, which we just launched. It's called DNI TBD, as in To Be Determined. So we've got the podcast, all kinds of coverage coming up there, and yeah, social media.
0: Excellent. Thanks for joining us. And listeners, wherever you like to find all of your audio and, and visual content, come find us and uh, just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Excuse me.